We've come to the concluding portion of No Longer Strangers 2019. Our text is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. There is no greater chasm between persons than between creature and creator, much less sinful creatures. And yet God in Christ became a man, took flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died in our place, paid our debt, shows us what real love is, promises us that He will never forsake us, that He has us in the palm of His hand, and He says, okay, now that you have seen what true love is, now that you've seen what it means to love people who are different than you because I've shown you, now go and love your neighbors. That's the gospel. We love because why? First loved us. I know you've got some, got some Bible readers up in here. It's that simple. You know, we put names on it, as we should. Racism. Intersectionality. Social gospel. And all that stuff. I mean, there's a language that we speak But isn't it really just the second commandment? If you will permit me this afternoon, I believe that there are three primary ways that Christians look at race in this country. Three. There are those who believe that racism is relegated to a particular group of people. This view holds that racism is more about where people are in society and less about what's in their heart. The second view holds that there are extremes on both sides, but the people in the middle are decent, hardworking Christians who basically get along with everybody, and they don't really have an aversion to anyone who's different than them. It's just the extremists. Then there's the third view, and it goes like this. Yes, there are extremes. That's hard to deny, especially today. But the people in the middle aren't without their own prejudices. They're not impartial because they're sinners too. And because they're sinners, the people in the middle have tiny seeds of prejudice and racism festering in their hearts, and they must be addressed with the gospel. Otherwise, they will tend toward their own kind and shun people who are on the outside. You will get the first two views from the world. You will get the third view from the Scriptures. John Bryson, the founding pastor of Fellowship Memphis, has a staggering quote. He says, Every Christian is a recovering racist to one degree or another. Racial prejudice is not on the fringes of society. Racial prejudice is not the property of one people or another. Racial prejudice is in our bones as believers, as sinners, sorry. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth to show us what real love looks like. We're not here this morning to point out and go, okay, at least we're not them. Bunch of two-bit liberals out there. 
Those hardline conservatives. Hmm. No, 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 no. This conference starts, the gospel starts with us looking at the sin in our own hearts. You can't leave this conference going, okay, I'm good. Now I got to fix all these people. <laughs> don't, don't leave like that. We got to look in. You cannot read Galatians 2 and believe that most people are fair, unbiased, impartial people. You can't read it because if that's what you believe, then Peter is an extremist. If you think that only fire-breathing racists will avoid people based on their ethnicity, then what do you do with Peter? The leader of the Jerusalem church is a bigot, I guess. I like that what, uh, what Crawford said. Peter knew better. Peter knew better. But Paul doesn't come up to Peter and take a theological two-by-four and just... <laughs> racist. Paul doesn't come up to Peter and beat him upside the head. More importantly, Paul doesn't um, treat Peter like Peter is treating the Jews and just go, you know what, enough with him. No, he appeals to Old Testament theology. Verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> when you say it, it's kind of confusing. Let's read that again. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I want to be clear for a second. I think, I agree with Crawford, I think we throw around the word racist far too casually in this country. Now, to be clear, there is racism in our country, especially in the last several seasons of, uh, in America, I feel like it just, sometimes it feels like it's getting worse. But Paul says here, it's really not even about racism. The real problem is we're a bunch of Gentiles who like living like Gentiles. Paul says that Peter needs to start acting like a Jew. Now, the first question you could ask here is, okay, Avi, I'm a little confused here. I thought, I thought we were all Christians now. <laughs> Why is he telling him to act like a Jew? I thought, new covenant, hello, <laughs> Christians, is this like old covenant stuff? Why is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, telling the apostle to the Jews to act like a Jew? I think that's a very fair question to ask. What Paul means here by Jew is the original sense of the word. Jew comes from Judah, which means praise or thanksgiving. Jews are to find their praise from God and not from man. In Romans 2, Paul asks, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, Paul says, because why? The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the Jews know the will of God, the character of God, the law of God. And because they know the will of God, they are to stand apart from the world and become a light to the nations. Which is exactly why Peter doesn't immediately start acting like the nations. Friends... Peter is supposed to be standing apart from the world, demonstrating God's love, compassion, holiness, righteousness, and instead he's acting like every other Gentile, hanging with a small group of people, fearing his own tribe rather than the God of the universe. We do the exact same thing today, do we not? 
In fact, I would go so far as to say we are as tribal today as Peter was 2,000 years ago. The church is designed to proclaim to the world God's holiness and His love. We're called by God to stand apart from the world. We are set apart. And instead, far too many churches today, especially in the American South, fear a group of people or a political party rather than fearing their God. And they end up looking like every other Gentile in town. Like Paul's basically walking up to Peter and he's like, Are you afraid of them? Why are you scared? Are you afraid of these people? Don't forget the God who made both Jew and Gentile. Don't forget the God who made both white and black and Hispanic. Don't, make, don't forget the God who created both Democrats and Republicans. Fear Him, not your party. I want you all to think about this this morning, this afternoon. If Paul can call out Peter, the head of the disciples, for simply eating with his own people and making the Gentiles feel like they're not welcome in the church... Can you imagine what he would do with us when we make people feel unwelcome in our churches because of the political filth we put on Facebook? Can you imagine? Here's a hard truth, and I want you to hear it because it was hard for me. There are people in this community that don't feel welcome inside those doors because of what they see us post on Facebook. I know because I've met them. Tribalism isn't for extremists. Tribalism's in our bones as sinners. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to remake us. Peter isn't a fire-breathing racist. He's a sinner. Now, somebody could go, Abby, I mean, I don't see the big deal here, honestly. I mean, I get it, but uh, Peter's just hanging out with his Jewish buddies. I mean, Paul's being a little harsh, don't you think? Paul isn't telling Peter that he can't eat with Jewish people. Paul's telling Peter that Jesus shed his own blood so that he could be set apart in holiness and love and not by skin color. In Newton County, there are countless churches full of people with the same skin color, the same social status, the same class, the same preferences, the same age, and the same friends. But what we've forgotten is that the church is not a group of friends that you choose. The church is a group of people that we call friends because God chose them for us. Because God wants the world to look at his church and he wants them to see that those people love Jesus more than they love their approval. He wants the world to look at the church and see that we don't give a dang about social approval, that we fear God more than man. Does the world see that when they look at us? Instead, what often happens is really what happens with Peter. We draw back and we separate ourselves. We fear the ruling party and inevitably we lead others to do the same. Something scary to think about. We can lead people astray from the gospel, not simply by what we say, but but how we live. 
A response I hear a lot is this. Well, I mean, I can't help it if I go to a white church or a black church. I mean, what's just the area I live in? It's not a sin. I think Peter could have easily said the same thing to Paul. Look, I'm the apostle to the Jews. (laughs) Come on. You do them, I'll do them. That simple, right? I'm hanging out with the people that I'm called to, Paul. What we need to remember and what Paul is reminding Peter is that it's not a sin to go to a white church or a black church. It's not a sin to have more in common sometimes with the people of your own race than with other races. But it is a sin to live like a Gentile when you were called to live as a Jew. It is a sin to prioritize your preferences above your worship of Jesus. This was so convicting to us at the church at Haynes Creek that last year I got together with a couple of our leaders, shepherd leaders, <coughs> Baptist version of elders. <coughs> okay, anyway, um, the, um, and we reevaluated. We said, why don't we have any black men who are shepherd leaders? And they asked me that, and I said, I, I don't know. We have really godly black men at our church. And so we did some soul searching and we reevaluated our leadership and we said if we claim to love all ethnicities, if we claim to believe that everyone is made equally in the image of God, and we want to send that message not just by the word that we preach on Sunday, but how we structure our church, if that's our goal, then why is our leadership all white? And so easy for us, we looked around and we saw there was already one guy who was basically doing everything that an elder does. His name's Willie Smith, and he rightly divides the word of truth, and he fulfills 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We said, Hip, there he is. It wasn't hard. And I guarantee you, he ain't a shepherd leader because he's black. I'll tell you that. The problem was we were blind. Most people in the South, black and white, simply do not understand that prejudice, tribalism, cliquishness, it's part of our sin. I have to be on guard all the time. I mean, to somehow claim that we're immune to prejudice is in some sense to confess that we are without sin. I have two black kids. I'm white. I'm really white. (laughs) And even as a pastor, I battle prejudice all the time. I battle the temptation all the time to give preferential treatment to white people or to understand them when they fall short more than I would black people. Because I want to live like a Gentile. My flesh wants to understand my own. In some sense, I am a recovering white racist raising two black kids by the power of the gospel and the spirit of adoption. Don't tweet that. (laughs) Jesus' unconditional love for me in the gospel directly shapes the way I love my kids. And I'm not colorblind. My kids are black. And I'm reminded of that every time I got to take or have, have Adrian come over our house because neither Kelly and I know how to 
do anything with Ruby's hair. But Kelly and I felt called to adopt because of the fact that God has adopted us into his family and he wasn't prejudicial. He came after us and he said, there is no greater difference than you and I and I love you. The gospel shapes how we live and how we parent. When it comes to black people and white people, our sinful tendency for prejudice is symmetrical. We are all sinners, therefore we are all subject to racial bias. We all need the gospel and we all need to be born again, amen? But we also have to understand that history is not symmetrical. In fact, it's very asymmetrical. The history of the state of Georgia is as much evidence as you would ever need that people like to live like Gentiles. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, when the issue of slavery came up, Charles Pinckney insisted, quote-unquote, South Carolina and Georgia cannot do without slaves. That's what he said. Years later, George Governor John Forsyth, who owned slaves and was a supporter of Pinckney, said, we, quote-unquote, hold that we have the right to exclude free people of color, to eject them and to limit their privileges when we admit them to reside with us. And if you are a Southern Baptist in Georgia, I mean, you've got like double exposure. The Southern Baptist Convention was formed in Augusta, Georgia in 1845. The sole primary reason for the Southern Baptist Convention was the right of missionaries to own slaves. I think the Southern Baptist Convention has actually done a great job in recent years in facing that. The Northern Baptists would not permit such a thing, so the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. And the controversy, believe it or not, Georgians, began with a missionary from Georgia, James Reeve, wanted to own slaves and to fulfill the Great Commission. How ironic is that? The longest tenured president, get this, the longest tenured president of the Southern Baptist Convention ever was Patrick Hughes Mell. He was also the president of the University of Georgia. Mel believed that slavery was essential, quote-unquote, for civilized society. Georgia history testifies that people would rather live like Gentiles than Jews. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be proud of our history, especially if you live in Covington. We have a proud history. I love Southern history. And it doesn't make you a racist just because you want that statue in the center of town to remain there to honor our heritage and our tradition. At least I believe. So long as you understand that we're also called to empathize and understand that that statue means something completely different for one half of the county than it does for the other half. So long as you understand that the soldier standing in there, while he does honor our tradition, he means something vastly different to our black brothers and sisters than he does to our white. Living like Jews means showing compassion and empathy and understanding to people who are different than us when the world won't. If we did that, I guarantee you there would be far less racial strife in this county and in this country than the kind we have now. And when it comes to living like a Jew, 
The finest example we'll ever need is Jesus Christ. Gave his life for Gentiles. He became one of us, walked in our place, stood in our shoes as a Jew, living as a Jew should, and said, I have sheep of this fold you don't even know, and I'm their shepherd too. How could we claim Jesus as our Savior and not show empathy and love to our very same brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died? I'm going to go ahead and say this because I just, I think it's relevant. It's also kind of something that just, I didn't hear it a lot until I moved in the South. I didn't think people believed it, but apparently a lot of people do around here. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, you know the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery. It was about states' rights. That's a joke. I'm getting a Ph.D. in American history. I've never seen anyone claim that ever. But it thrives down here. Raise your hand if you heard someone say that. That doesn't help us come together, folks. Yeah, yeah, that whole war we fought over slaving people, it wasn't about the slaves, it was about something else. I can only imagine if I was an African-American how I would think when someone said that. That's kind of like when Planned Parenthood tells us that Roe v. Wade really wasn't about abortion, it was about women's rights. I got you now, don't I? Because we know in reality the only right they actually care about is the right to exterminate unborn children, which is really no right at all. The Civil War was fought because the most sacred, precious, holy right they fought for and were willing to die for was the right to enslave blacks. And the reason that myth needs to die, it needs to die, is because it's the primary purpose of that myth to avert our eyes away from the cold, hard truth, which is that our ancestors, many of them believers, chose to live like Gentiles and not Jews. And if we can admit that, if we can admit that, then we would begin to rally around the Galatians too and we would destroy the strongholds of Satan that have bonded this city for far too long. History matters. And we can either wield it as a weapon or as an avenue for the gospel. I've always found it beautifully ironic that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. We name our kids after the guy. The guy who sold his brother into slavery. That's the tribe that the Prince of Peace came from. It's as if God wanted to remind us that God's grace can spring from the worst of evil. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than the past. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than politics. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than the color of our skin. It is the only thing that truly brings people together. All we have to do is repent of our sins and acknowledge the evil that resides in our own hearts. Racial reconciliation doesn't begin with a movement. It begins with repentance of sin. We have to confess that. I have to confess, Abi Todd has to confess with his flesh that I don't like being a light to the nations. 
My flesh wants to hang in. I, I, I don't want to be different. I don't like these conferences because it makes me nervous. Hope people don't say the wrong thing. But I have to admit that and I have to say, Jesus, change me, please. I got to be born again. I got to believe in the message of the gospel to change my heart, my sanctification, my continual progress in understanding the plight of my African brothers and sisters, African American brothers and sisters. My, my constant drive to continually grow in empathy and love is hinged on coming back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it. I was so hurt last year when men I loved and respected told me not to do the conference. More than one. And I said, they said, just just leave it, preach the gospel. And I said, that's what we're going to do. And what I found out they meant was, no, just preach it on Sundays. And I think the reason there was such hostility, and I want to be clear, there are older men, godly men at this church, who have just seen more than I have. And I want to be empathetic to that. But I think that the friction that, I, that we encountered is because far too many people have grown far too comfortable in this town living like Gentiles. But here's the good news. Thankfully, we fear God more than man. If you're a Christian, prepare yourself to be a social outcast. You will be despised. You will fit in. Here's the irony of this weekend. Today, we're talking about loving our neighbor of another skin color, and they're going to call us social liberals. Tomorrow, we're going to honor the unborn and talk about loving the unborn, and they're going to call us uh, fundamentalists. You will not fit in if you're a Christian. If you live like a Jew, you will be unpopular. But Jesus will shine. And here's the good news. If God can reconcile Jew and Gentile by breaking down the wall of hostility with his own blood, you better believe he can bring together Newton County. What strikes me most, and I wanted to end with this, about this passage is that Paul's so self-conscious about one thing. The Gentiles are watching you. Peter, they're watching. Our community is watching. They're watching what we post. They're watching what we say. And what they see will tell them as much as they want to know about the gospel we claim to believe. Warren Worsby said, the world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. You know what that tells me? Be careful. We got to be so careful about the way we talk about the other side of the county. We got to be so careful about the way we talk about Conyers. We got to be so careful about the way we talk about Lithonia. Well, don't go over there. My goodness. We got to be so careful about what we post on social media. 
Because the Gentiles are watching us. They too are the ones for whom Jesus came to die and they too are made equally and preciously in the image of God. The issue of race in an American South demands two things from the church. And really only one. We have to preach the gospel relentlessly. You heard it from Crawford. It doesn't take... It can't work unless we preach to the people that the gospel is the transforming work of God to change people's hearts. This whole thing won't work. The gospel is not a means to an end. The gospel is the triumph we have, and then we change people's lives from it. But we also have to live in step with that gospel, as Paul said. We must come before the judgment seat of God like filthy Gentiles, and we must live like Jews. If the gospel is our only hope to save sinners and to change lives, then the church is the world's only hope because we alone have the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That mantle, that responsibility, that freedom has been given to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so inadequate for these things. But we don't change people. You do. Because you changed us. Such were some of you, as Paul says. Father, the the key to racial unity is the reconciliation that we have with a holy God through the blood of Jesus. The gospel saves and the gospel changes. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name, amen. Thank you all so much for coming to No Longer Strangers 2019. Uh, I don't know if we'll have one next year, but uh, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't. Y'all have a good one.